This is tape number 13 of Dr. Joel Hunter's series, Faith from Heaven to Earth. The subject of his message is Faith for the Future. And from the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter's text is found in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and it reads as follows. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered, because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya, from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? And now, let's join in for praise and worship, followed by Dr. Joel Hunter's message, Faith for the Future. Message number 13 of the series, Faith from Heaven to Earth. And rising up one morning and saying, I'm getting out my harp and I'm going to sing praise to my God. I will give you thanks among the people. I'll sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, and your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let your glory be over all the earth. To know that the gifts that have been offered today, some are offered from hearts of brothers and sisters who are running from their enemies, whether outside or inside, but who look up to the skies and realize that their God is alive and cares for them and has entered into a relationship with them in which He promises that He will see a good thing through to the end. Father, I pray that You would look upon the faith of Your people and be pleased, be pleased with it, for it is something that You have placed there. Father, I pray now that as we worship through listening to your word preached to us, that you would give us hearts of flesh rather than of stone, minds conformed to the image of your mind, so that we may think your thoughts after you. pray that you would give Joel power from the throne of grace. Open up to us through him your word of grace that we may see on the horizon where you are taking us together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, as you're being seated, if you have your scriptures with you, and you'd like to open up to uh, Acts chapter 2, you can read along the text with me. Uh, I, 
I don't know what happened, but the, uh, the sermon title in your newspaper is wrong. Uh, I'm going to be preaching on that farther into the fall. During the fall, I'm going to be preaching a, ser- a series of sermons uh, on uh, building faith into your personal relationships. Um, but for right now, as, as most of you well know, we're just on a little mini-series of, of faith in the future, pointing toward a preaching series in 1996. And we're just giving a little glimpse here. Of, uh, of what it may be like. Now, last week, um, you heard my son Isaac uh, preach uh, from generation to generation, passing the faith from generation to generation. Um, <clears throat> this week, I'd like to just give you um, uh, a glimpse of what the extension of that faith may look like, how that may build on the foundation that's already been laid. And so... If you will look with me in this chapter, I will preach to you a, a little bit different flavor here. Look, this is not just a, a nice little sermonette on a little piece of scripture that wraps it all up in a bow. What I'd like for you to do uh, with you this morning is just to, to challenge you to start thinking about an area in your life. And, and, and to walk out of here and let, and let God drag you around with this for a while. So, now, some of you I, I, are just going to go... After this message, you're going to go, now, now what now? Now what do you just say? Because, because this is not in, in you know, the, the, the categories you usually have. Some of you are going to be saying, man, I've been waiting for him to say that for a dozen years. You know? um, and, and some of you, this will be a time release thing. You know, it, you'll go out of here and say, yeah, okay. But then you'll start catching it. You know, you start catching it. So uh, uh, just... Uh, Read with me. When the day of Pentecost had come, some versions say when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. I want you to know that this is a miracle that is a work of art, and this work of art happens to have sound attached to it. It happens to be an audible miracle. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them It also has visible effects. It's not just a matter of language. It's a matter of sound and sight. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. The Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem and devout men from every nation under heaven. If you could picture history as, as, as bookends, the, 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 the first uh, uh, part of uh, the spiritual called people, Genesis 12:3, and God said to Abram, "From you, every family of the earth will be blessed. Every nation will be blessed from you." And then Genesis, I mean uh, Revelation 7:9, where you picture. Worship in heaven. And what does it say of worship? Who's doing it? People of every tribe, of every nation, of every tongue under heaven. All of the nations are predicted. All of the nations are fulfilled. And this is the center point of history where all of the nations are included in the birth of the church. Now look at what it says. It says, And when this sound occurred, a multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each hearing them speak 
in his own language. Now, I don't, I don't want you to get the impression here that it's just, yeah, I kind of understand that. This, uh, this word language really means dialect. And so it is so specifically personal that they are hearing about the mighty acts of God from people who didn't know the language and they don't even notice an accent. That's how, that's how clearly they hear it. Each one in his own uh, dialect. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Behold, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And it, and it starts listing all of the nations or the representatives of all of the nations. I want you to note, just uh, parenthetically, that the first ones that, are na- that, that represent the countries, that, the, the tribes from Babylon, those who had held Israel captive. So the first ones that hear the good news are the ones who held them captive. We hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? (laughs) I love this. Now, let's talk about how the birth of the church happened and how the rebirth of the church, if it ever is to happen, will happen. In this time, God communicated in a way that was at once universal, it included everybody, and at the same time, personal. So personal that everybody heard the gospel, the mighty deeds of God, in exactly the language they needed to hear. Now, I want to challenge you at the the beginning of this sermon with a question. If God were going to communicate that way today, in a form or by a means that that was both universal and personal, how would he do it today, do you think? Well, let me lead you there. The first sentence of this said, and when the time had come, it really, uh, some versions say, and when the time had fully come. It reminds you of Galatians 4.4, where the Bible says, and when the time had fully come, Christ was born. In the Bible, there are two designations of time. One is chronos, from which we get the word chronology or chronological. And that means the simple segmenting of time. No differentiation of the quality or what's happening during the time. Just to say, you know, the days, the months, the weeks, and minutes, and so on and so forth. Chronos. But there's another designation. Kairos is the word. Kairos means the time is ripe. Something is happening. Something for which God has prepared us. Something special has now been provided for and is being ushered in. Again, if there were a time, these times, that God was going to do something special, in what form would he do it? You see, God expects us to read those signs. He doesn't expect us to predict it. It says in Acts 1-7, the times and the seasons aren't for you to know. In other words, I don't give you these times in order for you to predict and know what's going to happen. But by the same token, when something is right in front of you, God gets frustrated, I think, is a a word, um, when we can't see what's plainly in front of us. Jesus certainly got frustrated, as as is in uh, Matthew 16.3, when he's talking to the people and they go, well, when is the kingdom of God going to come? And and Jesus looks at us and says, wait, 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 wait. 
Wait a minute. Let me get this straight. You can read the sky. You can look up and know when it's going to rain. And you can't read the signs of the times. You see, Jesus expected them to understand what was going on in that culture. In like fashion, Jesus expects us to know what's going on in this culture. Again, let me ask you the question. If God were going to use a language to communicate in this culture, to further the telling of the mighty deeds of God, that was both universal and personal, in what form do you think that, pe- that per- personal communication and universal communication would be? I'll give you a hint. It's something that the church does not use a great deal of right now. Let me give you another hint. Most people say that people's, um, you know, how people spend money tells a lot about their values. I would, I would go further than that. I would say your checkbook is your spiritual autobiography. Your checkbook is your spiritual autobiography. In your checkbook, you will find what you deem important. Now, let me ask a follow-up question. In what job do individuals earn the highest salaries in this society? What job pays more than any other job in this culture? Entertainment. Sports, theater, movies, entertainment. The entertainers are the highest paid individuals. Millions and millions and millions of dollars. Michael Jordan, $40 million a year. He's an entertainer. He's a sport. The, the, in other words, the arts, especially the visible arts, are where the vast majority, or, or not, not the vast majority, the, the, the uh, what would be, it wouldn't be the means, it would be the, the, uh, What's the most used? What's that term? That M word. The, the mode? No, that's not it. What's the median? No? What? Man, never mind. Anyhow. <laughs> Looking for help here. Okay, let me ask you another question. I'll come up with it sooner or later. Um, the other valuable commodity in this society is not only money, it's time. Some would say that time is even more valuable to them than money. Let me ask you the same question. Of people's discretionary time, of your discretionary time, how is most of that spent? Again, the answer is toward probably some sort of visual entertainment. Some sort of uh, endeavor in some sort of art. You like to watch sports, you like to watch TV, you like to watch movies, whatever. When you're, when you're, or, or, you, or you go out and like to watch nature, whatever, that, that visual art. Now, here's the point. We are made like that. It is no accident that most of us are fascinated by what we see. Because from the beginning, we were made to be fascinated by what we see. You know who the first artist is? God. Do you know how God communicated to us before we ever had a language? He communicated to us through His creation, the greatest artwork of all. If you read in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, you will read this. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, 
His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. The visible arts are powerful to us for a reason. We were made to see through unto the Creator. The greatest artist made the greatest work of art in communicating himself in an image. The center of all history, Jesus Christ, was the image of God. Read Colossians 1.15. For he, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Christ was a visible replication of God on this earth. And if you have any doubts about that, that God came down in a certain form, you can read the second chapter of Philippians, verses 6 and 7. Speaking of Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. God began to communicate the mighty acts of himself through the world before there was this inerrant written commentary to interpret what all of them meant. God was the first artist. And so therefore we are made for the arts. So you say, well then... Why doesn't the church employ the arts today for the telling of the gospel? Why when we read in, in the birth of the church that there was, a, there was a visible and auditory miracle? Why when we're all so fascinated with entertainment today, we're either listening to music or we're watching TV or we're, we're watching movies, why when it holds the attention, the attention of the entire uh, uh, culture, why do we just say, look, if you're going to learn this, you've got to just learn it by putting one word after another? I'll tell you why. In the first place, the church has abdicated leadership in the arts because we have become afraid. Now, I've got to tell you that in Scripture, there's a lot of caution about using imagery. Because with everything, the more good it can have, the more danger it can have. And in here, God says, Thou shalt not make unto thyself any graven image. And what God meant by that was, anytime there's a people who raise up something they can see without an accompanying accurate theology, they're going to be indulging in idolatry. Remember that. Art without theology is idolatry. And that's exactly what we've done in this nation. We've made idols out of what we see, but we didn't have any theology to help us uh, understand what was happening. We made, Elvis is an idol. I mean, literally, people worship. People devote themselves to, to Elvis, you know? Why? Well, because they're weak theologically. And because they haven't got anything to help them understand various art forms. And so what the Protestant church did was, was throw the baby out with the bathwater. When, in Christian development, and from the very earliest times, Christianity, to tell the gospel, employed images, 
You can go down to the catacombs of the earliest Christians and you can see pictures all along the wall. And then as the, as the, as the church grew, there were great theologian, Augustine, you know, tremendous theologian. But also, in order to, to um, preach to an illiterate society, and that ought to ring a bell too, because our society is becoming more and more illiterate. Fewer and fewer are functionally literate people. And, and, I, and I want to say here, we will never give up uh, teaching our kids how to read. That is so important. But given the illiteracy of society, the church took the leadership in art. And they produced great architecture to give the, the, the overwhelming sense of the majesty of God. You go into some of the old cathedrals and you will immediately feel like a little speck in the midst of the majesty and greatness of God. That's theology. That's compelling theology through architecture. And they, and they employed um, sculpture. And they, they employed uh, painting. That, would, that wasn't for the elite. Art wasn't for the elite back then. It was for all the peasants who came in and couldn't read, but they could see the Bible on the wall. And they could understand how God had formed history. Well, what happened? Well, as the church developed, and as they didn't teach their people theology, what happened in the Roman Catholic Church was literally idolatry. Art? Without theology is idolatry. And people started worshiping the images instead of, of, of what they were supposed to convey, the God who, who they were supposed to represent because they were weak theologically. And so when the Protestant church got out of the Catholic church, they said, we don't want anything to do with art anymore. It produces idolatry. And we threw out the baby with the bathwater. Why? Because not all of us think only with the left side of our brain. God gave us two sides to our brain. The analytical and the creative. He gave us both the word analysis and the image. And most of us connect personally with images. You know, it happened just this morning, just this service. Reggie Kidd's standing up here. Most of you don't know Reggie is a professor in New Testament. At a, at a, he's a seminary professor. You talk about somebody who's articulate. And somebody who is, is, is literate, this guy has a Ph.D. in New Testament, knows more Greek and Hebrew and German than I know English. And so he gets up and he, he uses the word like tangentialize. And others are going, okay, tangentialize. But then he says, God doesn't need squat, you know? <laughs> and all of us are right there. We're going, yeah, God doesn't need squat. See? Forget the left side of your brain. Let's talk about the right side for a minute. You know? By the way, he may have uh, exaggerated just a little bit about the church not needing your money. God doesn't need your money, but the church really does. <laughs> but anyhow, you get one guy who says something that, that all of us can relate to. I mean, I mean, we're there on a personal level. It's not just a concept to be developed or analyzed. It's just a, it's just a, a picture word. Boom, we're right there. That is how theology can be taught in the future. I'm just giving you a piece of the expansion of this church, how I think we need to re-employ theology. Let me give you just a, a, a couple of examples of how this happened in the history of the church. If you would show those slides. 
first of all, let me, I'm going to show you two slides. One is one of, uh, uh, most of you will recognize, this is, this is uh, Michelangelo's rendering of the creation of man. It's on the Sistine Chapel. It was painted in 1511. And I want you to see two things here. I want you to see Adam that is created in perfect form. And I want you to see how he is postured toward God. But his expression is listless. He has, he has no power within himself. His, his arm rests uh, on his knee. Contrasting to that, I want you to see God. I want you to see the intention and the focus on his face. I want you to see that while he's wrapped in a purple robe, so purple always symbolized a power and royalty uh, back then, with the heavenly host. We just sang about the heavenly host. With, with the accompaniment of, of the heavenly host, it is God who is intentionally reaching out and taking the initiative to Adam. Show me the second slide. We want to focus in on these hands. Look at the hands. The, the, you know, Adam is the one whose hand is unable to reach out to God. And so if there's anything to happen here, it is God who must take the initiative. Could I say to you that that's more than a picture, that's a sermon. There are people who really believe that they, if they want to be godly, they're just going to transform their lives and make themselves good. And then we have the people who have tried that. And they end up totally worn out. Why? You can't make yourself good. You're postured toward God. You'll never be satisfied without God. But you can't make yourself be good without becoming frustrated and listless and totally worn out over a period of time. We are impotent to reach God. But God, in His grace and mercy, intentionally reaches out and does what we couldn't do. That is a parable for all effective prayer. The poor in spirit who says, God, I can't do this. I've just realized I can't do it. If it's going to be done, you're going to have to do it. Oh, God, help. You see? This is a sermon in, word, in, in pictures, not in words. That says more. That image says more than a thousand words could. A picture is worth a thousand words. Let me show you the next this is, this is Tintoretto's um, picture of the Last Supper. Now, most of you are familiar with da Vinci's picture. And da Vinci's picture is, is flawless in its organization. You've got to realize da Vinci was an architect as well as a, as, a, uh, uh, as a painter. And so, you know, he organizes everything. You know, into geometric perfection. The, the, the disciples are organized in three, and there's three windows in the back, and all the lines are going in. And you go, oh, man. But Jesus kind of sits there and is just kind of passing out stuff, you know? Now I want you to see a sermon in a picture. Every, every time we take communion, we distribute the, the elements to the believers. And, and, and we read the words of the Scripture over and over again. But, but probably the only picture we really have is the picture of Christ sharing himself with the disciples per se, and we're counting ourselves among those disciples. Look what Tintoretto did. He brought into the upper room mundane life, life that goes on, completely oblivious to what is happening. 
I want you to notice the cat over here that's just looking for scraps. And the dog down here that's chewing a bone. I want you to know the servants in the room that are, that are focused on the food, you see. Have we got enough food? Have we, have we done this right? Let's, you know, completely oblivious that history is being made. Do you understand? Every time we take communion, we do it in the midst of a world that is completely oblivious that history is being changed. That ought to be a part of our communion. That ought to be a part of what we notice and what we resolve out of our communion to incorporate those who haven't a clue. Look at what he did with the spiritual warfare. You know, there are, there are spirits here. Most of us assign all of this cosmic uh, uh, rulers and principalities stuff to Ephesians 6. Don't you know it's in Matthew 26 as well? That what happens when we take communion changes the heavenlies? That, that, that there's something that is, that is represented out of eternity when we take that sacrament? Well, once you look at a picture like this, you, you start to remember how wide this thing is, how much bigger it is. Look at how he has Christ. Look at Judas. Here's Judas. And I want you to notice Satan who is actively restraining the arm of Judas from taking, from, from, from allowing himself to go to Christ. Look at Christ. Christ isn't sitting behind a table just kind of passing things out, saying, man, I hope that gets down to Judas down there. You know? Christ is in the face of Judas, symbolizing the full responsibility of the rejection of God's grace. God doesn't just show up and say, Take it if you want it. God is in his face saying, here I am. And when he allows Satan to restrain him, he takes on the full responsibility. Now, shut off the, the slide for a moment and, and let me tell you two things. First of all, let me tell you that while I was setting this up, in theory, a number of you, and I, watch, I always watch your eyes here, a number of you are going... And a number of you are going, and a number of you are going, <laughs> I want to tell you, as soon as those slides come up, came up, every one of you that I saw, and I was looking at all your eyeballs, going like this, <laughs> fixed on those things. Why? Because you were made so that the visual has a powerful impact in your life. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think that if the church would reincorporate the arts for the telling of theology, for the teaching of theology, for the telling of the mighty acts of God, that it would have a powerful effect? Don't you understand that the reason that we get so fed up with the crap on TV is not their fault, it's ours? We have abdicated leadership. I don't want for the church's only response to art to be marching around with placards telling people what they shouldn't watch. What a waste of time. What a little minuscule effect you're going to have on the world and probably most of it reversed of what you think it is. The job of the church is to take leadership of the arts, to provide an alternative that would be powerful in people's lives. Read the signs of the times. There's already the power there. It's just trying to figure out who's going to make the best offering. Why not the church? 
not to the exclusion of linear teaching, but to its partnership. Don't throw away the right side of our brain. There is a market. People are hungering for wholesome alternatives to crap. They really are. Look at Branson. I mean, I'll give you a little bit. Branson, Missouri. A little podunk cow town in Missouri. I had a, my, my friend was a minister there for years. Nothing happened in Branson, Missouri. You know? What's in Branson? Nothing. And then some Christians decided to build a wholesome uh, place of entertainment. You don't even hear a cuss word in these shows. And most of them are overtly Christian. They have decided that that will be a wholesome alternative. I mean, they don't... Uh, Hooters tried to build a place there and they wouldn't let Hooters in. You know? Now you think, okay, so a few, a few Christians are going to trickle in there. A hundred thousand people a day. People are so hungry for an alternative to the crap, but they have no alternative. Why? Because the church has abdicated leadership. What if the church would say, no, we're going to read the signs of the time. We're going to employ the form of communication that is both universal and particular in its effect. We're going to re-enlist the arts to tell of the mighty works of God so that every one of them glorifies God. Everything goes to the understanding of what God has done in our lives. What do you think would happen? What do you think would happen to our church? What do you think would happen to our children? Who are, who, many of them who, who can't read very well yet, if they, if they came in here and this place looked a little bit more like the Sistine Chapel and a little bit less like the inside of a chalk tube. <laughs> really? What do you think would happen if the kids could come in and they could see that the, the, the replicas of biblical stories and, and there were also... Uh, uh, scenes of, of how God had, had made the world so that they, seeing the world, would have a totally different opinion when they, when they looked from now on. There was a woman who, who went up to a famous landscape artist and, said, and, and, and looked at his beautiful landscapes. And she, she looked at him and she said, You know, I, I, I can't see in nature what you put into your pictures. And he looked at her and says, Oh, don't you wish you could? You know, the function of art is to help us see what we've never seen before. What do you think? If we re-employed all of the arts, if we won't, weren't so afraid of any of the arts, you know, I think of even dance. David danced before the Lord. I think of even comedy. The most popular show... On TV today is Friends. How many of you watch that? Well, don't raise your hand. Don't, you don't have to... Uh, you know. In a way, in a garbage kind of way, it's hilarious. It's the best written thing I've ever seen. What if we had that quality in Christian? Now, some of you get recoil at comedy. Let me ask you, though, this. Who are the only people in the world that have a cause for eternal joy? See, the rest of the population is laughing up their sleeve. You know, it's just gallows humor. It's only a while before they hit bottom. We have eternal joy. Who has more uh, 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 of, a, of a challenge, of a, of a right to see things in terms of human foible 
but trusting God. I, 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 I'm, I'm, getting, I'm wondering here, but I just I want, to, I want to give you a picture. I want to plant a seed this morning. What would happen if that would not only stay here in the church, but we would, we would, have, uh, we would commission Christian works out in the community so that not only believers, but non-believers, people from every nation could have access to the eternal things of God and hear it in the language that they've grown to love. What would happen if we would eventually, and I'm not talking years, I'm talking decades, I'm talking generations here. It's going to take that long. But again, just as David couldn't build the temple, and they went to God and says, I want to build a temple. And, and, and God says, no, you got too much blood on your hands. I'm going to let your son build a temple, but I'm going to let you take up the offering." And that's exactly what God said. It won't happen all with us, but I'm telling you what, we can start. We can start this process. But what would happen if... uh, Just one more. What would happen if we were to teach the appreciation of God and God's creation through the fine arts? You know, there are a lot of Christian schools in, in this city. Some wonderful Christian schools. They don't need another Christian school. But I don't know of any school that is doing a good job, Christian or secular, at teaching fine arts. I don't know of anyone. Maybe we could, maybe we could start a school of fine arts and be an additive. Be an additive to the, to the wonderful works that are already being done in Christian schools. Just be, just be a segment or a part of their ministry. So that we could take kids from the very youngest... Or artists who are already into the field but need to be sharpened by other Christian artists. And all of us could learn how to best do work that glorifies God and enjoys Him forever. I'm telling you, these are the signs of the times. And God does not bring history to a point in order to be kept out of it. (laughs) God only brings history to a point in order to become more manifest in it. I don't know about the rest of Christendom. I believe it's time for all of Christendom to take this challenge. But I know this about Northland. Northland needs to no longer throw away the right side of its brain. We'll always be analytical. We'll always be research-oriented. We will always be word-oriented but we will also be picture word oriented. We will develop the arts here to the glory of God. We will renew the method that God started. Please stand and pray with me. God, first I want to pray for forgiveness. Forgive us for letting our fear overshadow your potential. Father, come to us. Just like that day when the church was born, light a fire in this place. A fire that burns to tell the full story in the full way of what you have done in history. A fire that glorifies Christ. A fire that gives a hungry and impoverished and growing illiterate population 
an alternative to their sorry forms of entertainment. Father, help us to be deep and rich. Help us to reflect who you are. And now, take us from this place, having planted a vision in our hearts, and grow it in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.